All right, good morning, Hillcrest family. Thanks for the great worship this morning. Isn't it good just to get up and come to church on the first day of the week and let what happens in this place on this day on this week be what guides the rest of everything you think, say, and do for the rest of the week. What a positive, encouraging, and eternal way to start our week together. There is a reason the Bible says don't forsake coming together as some are in the habit of doing. We need the Lord and we need each other and we're thankful to be able to celebrate Jesus. What another good-looking summertime July Sunday group of people today both here and at our Spanish Trail location. Welcome to all of you who are there this morning and to those of you who are worshiping with us online in who knows where here in our nation, around the world, in our state. We're just glad everybody's in the house today, wherever that house may be. And let's put our hands together and just welcome each other to church this morning. Now, nobody leave early today because at the end of our hour this morning, we'll be taking the Lord's Supper today. Won't that be special and great? So be sure to hang with us all through the service today. We'll be taking it here and at our Spanish Trail location. Uh, but let's get into the Word for a few minutes this morning. I'm in Acts chapter 16 today. We continue in this wonderful series in the life and ministry of the early church, a church on mission, uh, our fifth leg in this larger study of the book of Acts this particular series we're calling Sent, and we're looking <clears throat> fundamentally at the wonderful missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and his missionary teams that go on these three journeys together with him. Today I want to speak with you from Acts chapter 16 on the subject, what to do when the rule book is silent. Anybody in the house today like to play games, board games, card games, things of that nature? How many of you have ever been at a table playing a board game or a card game with somebody only to have somebody try a move that you thought was a little bit underhanded? You weren't sure that that was a move that was in accordance to the rules. And there's always a legalist at the table. Can I have an amen? And whenever that happens, the legalist always self-identifies by making a move toward the rule book. I don't think you can do that. So they go to the rule book. And how many of you have had an opportunity like that before where that particular move was not addressed by the rule book at all? And so you didn't know what to do. Do I make a big deal? Of course, today, if it's not in the rule book, somebody just pulls out the cell phone, goes on Google, tries to Google it. What do you do? when there's not a specific answer for a specific question that you have for a decision that has to be made that's not in the rule book. I'm telling you, in my nearly 55 years of life, I find that life is a lot like that. An issue creeps up in your life and you have to make a decision. And if you're like me, you want to honor God with that decision. The only problem is you're not altogether sure what the right thing to do is. Anybody ever been there? Would you say amen? So you go to the Bible that the pastor says is the guidebook for life and living, but you can't find anything in the Bible that addresses directly the specific issue that's in front of you. So then you go to Google, 
And I know what you type in. What does the Bible say about putting my argumentative father in the nursing home? That's what you want to know. And you don't get anything back. Well, what do you do? How do you make wise decisions in the will of God when the rule book is silent or when you're dealing with a gray area of Christian life and practice. That's what we want to visit about for a few minutes today. Our Bibles are open to the 16th chapter of Acts. Acts 16, of course, marks the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. This is the longest and maybe even the most critical of Paul's three missionary journeys. Certainly the most exciting as it's revealed by Luke. It's a three-year, 3,000-mile journey where the gospel will penetrate for the first time into Europe, and it would literally be a journey that changes the world. This particular tour began with Paul's desire to go back into the region of South Galatia where they went on their first missionary journey and revisit the churches in South Galatia that he and Barnabas had founded. Paul had a pastor's heart, and he wanted to make sure that the churches were growing, the real discipleship was taking place, that the church had properly appointed elders and pastors and, and leaders to guide those churches. There, of course, was a bitter dispute before they ever got going that caused Paul and Barnabas to separate. If you were with us last Sunday, we looked at the subject of conflict. And so we're told here in the last part of Acts 15, Acts 15 and 40, that Paul and Barnabas separate, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. But the question then becomes, what now? After they make their way through those areas, what are we supposed to do next? Can I say this morning that one of the wonderful things that I love about our Lord is that he's a guide who lovingly, tenderly, and carefully guides his children. God is a communicating God who leads and who guides and who directs his children. Isaiah 58 and verse 11 says this, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desires in, in scorched places and make your bones strong. I love that statement. God will continually guide you and satisfy your desire. And of course, one of my personal favorite statements in the Bible, statement of many that is often marked as a favorite, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will what? He will direct your path. Do you believe that this morning, Hillcrest family? I believe it with all my heart. That's been one of the guiding verses of my life. And so with those two critical statements in mind and many others that are like them in the pages of God's Word, let's take a look at two very important scenes early on in this missionary journey, this second journey, this European tour of the Apostle Paul, and what they teach us about God's divine 
guidance. Much as I did last week, I'm going to give you two fundamental theological statements from the Bible, and then we'll conclude with some practical helps as it relates to making wise decisions in the will of God. Everybody ready to go? Would you say amen? First of all, I want you to notice that first, God guides our practical ministry. Your practical ministry, your life, the direction of your life, practical things with respect to everyday life, God is willing to give guidance to. Paul and Silas have set out from Antioch, the church at Antioch in Syria, and they've arrived back in South Galatia because that's their first thing to tick off the to-do list, go back to visit those churches in South Galatia. Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, and this is where we find them at the beginning of Acts 16, checking up on the health and the growth of those churches. Now, let's pick up our reading in Acts 16 and verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For all they knew, or for they all knew rather, that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Ironically, the decision about circumcision and salvation. Verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Now, let's stop there for a moment because it's here in Lystra that we're introduced for the first time to someone who will become, of course, a major theological player in terms of the gospel mission of the early church. And that, of course, is Timothy. Timothy's a very young man at this point, perhaps even a teenager still. But he's a young man that Paul is going to come to love dearly. As much as he loves anybody on the planet, he's going to love this young man named Timothy, pretty much as his own son. And he uses that language throughout the letters that he writes later. For example, in 2 Timothy 1, he refers to Timothy as my beloved child. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he refers to Timothy as my true child in the faith. It's, there's a great likelihood Timothy was probably saved under the preaching ministry of Paul during the first missionary journey as Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel in Lystra. It was in Lystra that the preaching of the gospel nearly got Paul killed. He was stoned and left for dead beside the road. The next day, got up and went on to preach the gospel in Derby. But likely, Timothy, who was a Lystran, heard the gospel preached by Paul and Barnabas and was likely saved during that time. And since they had been apart, now Paul comes back, finds that Timothy's grown up quite a bit, seems to be very mature, has grown significantly since Paul was there the first time. And so Paul makes this decision. This would be a good guy to replace John Mark. We need help. The work is bigger than just me and Silas. And so Paul wants to bring Timothy on as a ministry associate. But there's a problem, and the problem is presented in large part because of his blended family upbringing. There is just a snag that Paul runs into that he thinks may be problematic. Timothy's mother was a Jew, which meant that Timothy would have been considered a Jew. If you were the son of a Jewish mother, you were, by definition, a Jew 
racially and nationally. And so his mother uh, was a Jew and he was taught well the Hebrew scriptures by both his mother and his grandmother, who Paul names later on. We know them to be Eunice and Lois. They were lovers of the Hebrew Bible and they made it sure that young Timothy was trained in the scriptures of his theological fathers. But outwardly, he lived kind of as a Greek. He resembled his daddy in terms of his life and his practice. He was a Jew, but he had a Greek name, Timothy. And more to the point, uh, Timothy had never been circumcised as certainly Jews typically were. And based on what we know about the Jerusalem council and the fact that now Paul and Silas are up there taking this letter that came from James and telling everybody, hey, here's the deal. All y'all Gentiles, you don't have to become Jews first in order to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So circumcision is of no value anymore. What matters now is faith. It's faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ that saves a person. So here they are waving that letter, making this proclamation, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, not of works like circumcision, not of works like baptism, not of works like church attendance, not any kind of human work so that no man can boast in the presence of God. It's all about the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ, the person and work of Christ, and simple faith on my part. He's not to be circumcised anymore. And so how ironic that Timothy would be required to be circumcised by Paul. We wouldn't think that the fact that Timothy had not been circumcised would be a big deal at all. And yet Paul finds himself in the conundrum of what he would consider to be kind of a tough decision. In fact, this same issue is going to come up again when Paul is confronted with another young convert to the faith whose name was Titus. He'll write the letter to Titus, which is near the back of your New Testament to this young man named Titus, who was a thoroughgoing Greek. He didn't have any Jewish blood in him at all. Look at Galatians 2, beginning in verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Verse 5, to them, we did not, to them, to those Jews who were insisting that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved, to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So here you have Titus, not forced to be circumcised. And the reason that was true is because circumcision wasn't necessary for a thoroughgoing Gentile to be born again. So we're surprised when we read back here in Acts 16 that Paul took Timothy and what? Circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father is a Greek. Not about you, if you read this for the first time and you're carefully reading the New Testament and you read these passages together, some people might think, well, wait a minute, didn't Paul just sell out right here? What was the deal? I mean, he got all ticked off at Barnabas because Barnabas wouldn't sit at the table and have fellowship with uncircumcised men. And now he's got an uncircumcised man who's clearly a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ insisting that he be Circumcised, is that not a sellout? I thought circumcision didn't matter anymore. Why insist that one young man be circumcised and yet leave the other uncircumcised? Well, in Timothy's case, may I say it this way, this was an example where the rule book was silent. 
And Paul has to make a spirit-guided decision on something, watch this, that didn't amount to a spiritual matter. It instead amounted to a practical ministry matter. You know why Paul had Timothy circumcised? There was a very good reason for it. Because Timothy was a Jew, and Paul planned to take him as a ministry associate, and what would be the first places they went into and all these places they went around to? They went where first? To the synagogue. People were going to know that Timothy was a Jew. They were going to expect Timothy to have been circumcised for those Jews in those synagogues, particularly as they journeyed back through South Galatia where Timothy would have been known. That could have been a real impediment. You mean to tell me this Jewish man has never been circumcised? What's up with that? Paul didn't want any, anything to get in the way of people who were lost, separated from Christ, desperately needing to hear the message of the gospel. He didn't want anything to be an impediment to people hearing the word of God. So Paul has him circumcised, not because he has to. Everybody heard me say amen. Not because he has to, but because it would be practically helpful in helping them to accomplish their mission. So what does Timothy do? He swallows hard. Can I have an amen? He swallows hard, and he takes one for the team as a matter of ministry strategy, not spiritual necessity. Everybody tracking with me, say amen. See, remember when Paul wrote to the Corinthians saying this statement? Remember when Paul said this? I become all things to all men. Everybody tracking with me? That by all possible means, I might save some. If I really believed that God had called me to be a missionary to biker gangs, I might consider growing a beard and getting a tattoo if that would ingratiate me to the people that God had called me to minister to. I'm not promoting getting a tattoo. I'm not promoting not getting a tattoo. I'm just saying that's a gray area, and I've known many guys that have done that who have that as their calling because it becomes not a matter of spiritual yes or spiritual no, but it's a matter of practical ministry necessity. It happens in churches all the time. I remember the first time in my first church, where our worship pastor decided to lead from the stage playing a guitar. Oh, Lord. Instead of leading by piano and organ, he was a guitarist. He was very good at it. He decided to lead with guitar. Well, I know we had some people go straight to the Bible. Amen. Because there's got to be something in the Bible that that would be prohibited. Well, it was not prohibited. The Bible's silent on that. That's a gray matter of practical ministry strategy sometimes even ministry necessity. And we make those decisions all the time. These are secondary matters, not primary matters. Doing them or not doing them does not change the gospel one iota. And whenever we're faced with those kinds of decisions, it's important that we listen to the Spirit, apply wisdom, and trust God to guide us in those times when the rule book is silent. Everybody tracking with me so far? Say amen, that makes sense? So, God gives guidance in matters of practical ministry. 
But also God gives guidance in matters of personal direction. Beginning here in Acts 16 and verse 6, we're presented with one of the most famous times of critical decision-making in the history of the church. Let's read it together, beginning in verse 6 of Acts 16. Everybody still with me? Say amen. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Now let's just stop here for a moment because I think you can get the picture. They're trying to figure out where the Lord wants them to go next and they're having a hard time doing it. And here's a positive word. This ought to be a, a, a wonderful word of encouragement to anyone here today who's ever tried to figure out the specific will of God for your life, but were totally confused for a while. Has anybody ever been there? Would you raise your hand or shout amen this morning? like all the time, many times in life. I mean, you've got to decide. And you go to the rule book, but it's not clearly spelled out. You've got to decide about a relationship, maybe even an engagement. Am I supposed to marry this woman? Man, I remember asking that question. I couldn't find Judy's name in the Bible anywhere. Wasn't in there. So how am I to know that this is the right thing to do. Or maybe you've had four offers to four great universities. They've offered you good money, they've accepted you. All of them have wonderful things to offer. And you go to the Bible and you can't find, you get out of concordance and look up Florida State and it's not there. What do you do? Or maybe you've got a pretty good job and a headhunter calls you out of nowhere and says, man, I've got a lucrative deal for you and it's twice what you make, but it's 1,500 miles away. You like what you do, but this is a great opportunity for advancement, so should you stay or should you go? And you go to the concordance again, you look up Lockheed and you can't find it, it's not there. Try as you might, contrary to popular opinion, the Bible's not gonna spell that out completely. It's not going to say FSU's better than Florida. It's not going to say Lockheed's better than General Dynamics. It's not going to say Air Force is better than Navy. Or Cindy Lou is better than Mary Jane. It's not going to say that. These men think they have the will of God figured out. Paul said we are to go to Asia, and he's probably pushing his way from South Galatia directly westward toward Ephesus because that was a big city, happening city. That's what he thought the will of God was. But they're mistaken. And here are these great Christian leaders in the history of the faith trying to figure out what region to penetrate next with the gospel. They go west. Paul says we were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Then they shift north, and they go up to Mysia. Guys, do we have that map? I'm not sure that we brought a map in here with us today. If we've got the map, put it up. There it is. Amen. So that purple region there is Cilicia. Tarsus is where Paul was from. Then they go up into the green region. That's South Galatia, Derby, Iconium, Lystra, Antioch, and Pisidia. Then they're wanting to penetrate into the region of Asia, 
Ephesus is due west, and that's where they tried to go, and the Spirit said no, and so they pushed north. Paul figures it out next. It's Bithynia. We're going to Bithynia, so he goes straight north. That's the yellow region up by the Black Sea. And the Lord puts the brakes on there, and the Bible says here, the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. So they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Then the Spirit of Jesus shows up and says no, so they turn hard west again, going across the northern tier of Mysia, just south of the Sea of Marmara. And they end up landing on the coast there at Troas. And you can see the route that they take through the rest of their journey, which we'll get to as we go along. But there they are at Troas, and Paul's probably sitting out on a rock overlooking the Aegean Sea saying, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've, I've got two strikes against me right now. I thought it was Asia. No. I thought it was Bithynia. No. I thought maybe we'd stop in Mysia. God kept saying, no, no, no. And we have absolutely no idea what those impediments were. Luke doesn't tell us. We call them closed doors, but we don't know what they were. We don't know if somebody got sick or if they had transportation difficulties or if there was major hostility, which wouldn't be surprising because they faced that a lot, persecution. All we know is that they were stymied. And I'd imagine based on what we know about these men that they, they were seeking the Lord. There's no question about that. But they were obviously frustrated not knowing where they were supposed to be. Has anybody ever been there before in their walk with the Lord? Yeah. But you know what I found? God always comes through to those who, whose hearts are fixed on him to those who ask and keep on asking, to those who seek and keep on seeking, to those who knock and keep on knocking, eventually the door will be opened unto them. God always comes through when the time is right. Let's pick up our reading in verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately, we, we, now it's third person or first person plural. That means Luke has joined them in Troas. Luke is now writing on the journey because everything goes from they up to this point now to we. We sought to go on into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So God eventually got them to where they were supposed to be using both means of prohibition and positive direction to get them where they were supposed to be, the Roman free province of Macedonia. Now, we're going to talk more about the beginnings of the Macedonian mission next Sunday because it's surely a good one. But for today, I simply want you to notice that these are two accounts that we've looked at this morning that speak to the critical issue of decision-making, making wise decisions in the will of God when there's no immediate clear-cut answer. And since this is obviously the subject of many conversations, too many to count with people through the years, where people are trying to figure out life and figure out their future and figure out their present for that matter. People continue to bring these problems to their pastor and other people that they trust. Let me conclude this morning, if I can, just landing the plane very practically 
offering some helpful suggestions. I'm going to give you six this morning. I could have given you 15, but time is uh, our enemy this morning, so let's just what, deal with what we can in the time we have remaining. Some helpful suggestions when it comes to making wise decisions in the will of God. Everybody still with me? Say amen. First of all, eliminate anything that runs counter to God's word. Let's just start very simply. If the Bible speaks to the issue, whatever that issue is, and it speaks specifically, that ought to be your guide right there. And sometimes it'll be crystal clear, clear as a bell. At other times, uh, the Bible might not address an issue directly, but it may speak around an issue generally. And so this is where you need to start. You never want to make a decision ever, ever, ever that runs counter to the obvious teaching of the Word of God. Amen. If God's Word addresses it, that, that's the final arbiter. God, can I just make a statement this morning? God's not going to lead you to do something that will cause you to sin or to cause others around you to sin. And I've had people come in to tell me all kind of things. Pastor, I'm just absolutely convinced that this is the will of God. And then what they have told me they're convinced is the will of God, I can go to chapter and verse and show them it's not. There's something. You know what the difference is? That's what you want to do. And you're trying to justify it based on a word that supposedly the Spirit of God has spoken to you. Spirit ain't told you nothing of the such. Not if the Bible has clearly addressed it. So you want to eliminate anything that runs counter to God's word. This book is where anybody should always start when it comes to decision making. Two, ask the Spirit to guide you. Particularly in the gray or secondary matters that are not directly spelled out by the Bible. Ask the Spirit to guide you. See, this is what's happening here. I mean, you've got a Trinitarian thing going on in here. Because on one instance, Paul says the Holy Spirit forbade us. Then he says the Spirit of Jesus said no. And then when it came to Macedonia, he uses the language of God the Father. We have concluded that God wanted us in Macedonia. So you have an allusion to the Father, allusion to the Son, allusion to the Holy Spirit. You've got the Trinitarian God working through all of this. And the Spirit desperately dependent on the Spirit of God to guide them when they didn't have a rule book to tell them what was supposed to be next. The Spirit guides them through all kinds of things. Closed doors, impediments that are unnamed. One of these days we'll know what those impediments were. But those impediments were put there by the Holy Spirit in order to properly direct them. And then positive guidance, like the vision of the Macedonian man. That's the Holy Spirit communicating directly to them. So the Spirit's role is obvious. We were forbidden by the Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus said, no. Listen, can I just say it? God is a God that still speaks today. He's a communicating God. He has a voice. And he's not the author of confusion. We tend to complicate the will of God more than it ought to be complicated. Most of that's because we're injecting self into the mix. Most of the time I find it with people, I just can't figure out the will of God. They know nine times out of ten they know what the will of God is. They just don't want to do it. So they're desperately searching another out. Pastor, tell me. Tell me I'm right about this. No, you ask the Spirit to guide you because he will, and he doesn't guide with confusion. Third, 
And along those same lines, watch your motives. <laughs> Amen. Watch your motives. Because a part of successful decision-making, fruitful living involves being totally open and willing to do whatever God may lead you to do. Are you willing to do whatever God says to do? Are you willing to go wherever God tells you to go, to move wherever God tells you to move? Because let me tell you something. Many people mistake the will of God with ease. And it ain't necessarily so. Boy, this is just really too hard. God must not be in it. No, the fact that it's hard may be proof that God's right in the middle of it. Because just because it's easy, does it mean it's God's will? And just because it's hard, doesn't mean it's not. God is leading this missionary team to go into Macedonia. Has anybody read ahead and finds out what's going to happen to these boys in Macedonia? They're going to get the dickens beat out of them in Macedonia, in large part. Run out of town, one town to the next, till Paul has to flee to Greece. No, just because it's easy doesn't mean God's in it. And just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not. The question is, are you willing to do hard things if God asks you to do hard things? Because it's not uncommon at all for somebody to say they want to do God's will, but in their heart, man, they got a strict one-way approach. Here's, here are my conditions, Lord. The only problem with that is if you've got conditions, Christ is not Lord. If he's Lord, no conditions. Unconditional surrender to Jesus. And you don't bring a heart that's more gratified about self or that's more bent toward gratifying self than it is about obeying God. I've had people, I've had people come into my office with a Bible in their hand before where the decision, as they talked about it to me, the decision seemed pretty clear to me, honestly. They just didn't want to do it. And what they want me to do is to add spiritual validity to what they want to do. Hey, hey, hey. And that's not my role. No, your desire ought to be God's desire for you. You know what I think one of the most misunderstood, misappropriated verses in the Bible, Psalm 37, 4, delight thyself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And you know what most people say? If I go to church, I go to connect group, I serve a little bit and I give a little money, delighting myself in the Lord, then God becomes obligated to give me anything and everything I want. If I want it, he needs to give it to me. That's not what that verse means. No, when you, you know what? You know what's going to happen when you delight yourself in the Lord, when you abide in the Lord Jesus Christ? You all know what's going to happen? His desires become your desires. Amen. The desires of your heart are not selfish desires. They're God's desires for the one who delights themselves in the Lord. It has nothing to do with getting whatever you want from God. That's a prosperity gospel. It's not true. So watch your motives. Make sure they're not selfish, but focused on God's will, his word, and doing as he leads. Fourth, seek godly counsel. Seek godly counsel. Circle the word godly. Godly counsel. The Bible says that. There is wisdom in a multitude of counsel, but you better make sure it's godly counsel. 
counsel from trusted people that you know walk with Jesus more than six weeks. They've been around the block with the Lord a time or two. I mean, somebody that's like Stephen. When you seek godly counsel, you want to go to somebody like Stephen. You remember what the Bible said about Stephen? He was a man full of faith, full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace. Those are the kind of people you want to seek counsel from, okay? So seek godly counsel. Listen to them. Learn from them. But understand that even the counselor is not the voice of God. Oh, there's so much I could say about this. You all know when I surrendered to the ministry, I had more people try to talk me out of it than tried to encourage me to it. And I'm talking about godly people. So the voice of the counselor is not the final arbiter. You should do it, but nothing ever overrides what you know to be the clear calling of the voice of God in your life. I wish I had more time. Fifth, consider the potential consequences. I mean, you can kind of think through issues. I do that with big decisions and have for years. One thing about this decision here in Acts 16 is that the team is working on it together. Together. Uh, They went. They attempted to go. They went down. They were forbidden. And then when the vision came, they concluded. Paul took the vision to the rest of the team, but they concluded God had called them to preach. They were working on it together, almost like, like, like you do working a jigsaw puzzle. They were putting the pieces of the puzzle in place, which is what you sometimes have to do. That's been my experience many times where Judy and I and our family have had to make a hard decision when we didn't have all the facts. And can I say this morning, you'll never have 100% of the facts, ever, ever, ever. If you had 100% of the facts, you wouldn't need any faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. So you won't ever have 100% of the facts. You won't ever have 100% certainty for that matter. But in the absence of the Spirit writing the answer in the sky, wise decision-making involves critical thinking too. You have to think. You don't put your brain on a shelf when you decide to follow Jesus Christ. We work through what's likely to happen if we make this decision, what's likely to happen if we don't. And that's just part of using the gifts and the abilities that God has given you. So consider the potential consequences. And then finally, let's just say it, make a decision and don't be afraid. 365 fear nots in the Bible. Fear not, fear not, fear not. No, when it comes to decision making, so many people got this idea of one option being right and every other option is wrong, and it's not always the case. There may be multiple good options. But you know what happens? A lot of times we get mesmerized by the paralysis of analysis and we don't do anything because we're afraid of God. It's like a game of let's make a deal, you know? There are three doors there and God is behind one of them. Behind one door, there's God in blue skies and puffy clouds, and God will say, you've chosen wisely. And then the other two doors, God is behind there with a lightning bolt. And when that door opens, he's looking at you and he says, well, how stupid can you be? I'm going to make your life miserable for the rest of your life. And that's not God. Let me tell you, when you're delighting yourself in the Lord, you're seeking the Lord, You're taking self out of the equation. You're not kicking doors in that the Spirit 
is obviously closed. Sometimes if you still got one or two or three decisions, sometimes the best thing to do is make a choice. Make a choice. There are lots of jobs that you could thrive well in. There may not be one right job. Some people would disagree with that, but there may not be. There may be lots of jobs that God can use to bless your life. There may be one best, but there may not necessarily be one absolute. The same is true with relationships. The same is true with schools, whatever you want to fill in the blank. If you're seeking the Lord with all your heart, sometimes you just do what you think is the best thing to do, and you put that in the hands of the Lord and say, Lord, as best I can, This is what I think the right thing is. I'm proceeding ahead in faith. And Lord, if somehow I've missed a cue somewhere, I'm trusting you to speak to my heart and get me turned around in much the same way he did this missionary team who went the wrong way three times. And God lovingly and gently directed them along the way, growing them up as they went along. You know what I'm communicating here today? I don't want you to live in fear of God. I want you to trust God. Seek him with all your heart. And the Bible says, whomever seeks me, they will find me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will what? He will direct your paths. So go forth in confidence and make wise decisions in the will of God.